Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Greetings. Co-hosts Eleanor Arrangers and Tom Hill would like to welcome you to Space 3D. In this podcast episode, Eleanor and Tom have the opportunity to interview physicist and space radiation expert, Jeff Chancellor. Jeff is an assistant professor of physics at Louisiana State University with research interests in applications of how heavy ion radiation interacts with soft and condensed matter for ground-based analogs manned spaceflight vehicle structure, shielding, and clinical health care. During part one of our interview, we'll get to know Jeff Chancellor a bit better, including how he got interested in space radiation research. We'll share some mutual admiration for all mankind, including nerding out on a recent season two episode involving his favorite topic, and then we'll get back to learning about Jeff's involvement in the Red Bull Stratos mission, his patents in the space radiation field, and whether any of the monitoring hardware he has helped develop has flown in space. We'll ask whether Jeff had any words of wisdom on space radiation for his wife, astronaut Serena Chancellor, prior to her flight to the ISS, and we'll end with defining the difference between the terms space radiation and space weather. Starting in part two of our interview, we'll begin to explore the specific risks posed by space radiation to space explorers. Well, hello to our esteemed audience. This is Eleanor Rangers, um, one of your co-hosts for the Space 3D podcast. And this evening we're joined uh, by Jeff Chancellor, who is a PhD and an assistant professor of physics at Louisiana State University. He has multiple research interests having to do with space radiation or space weather, which we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, but um, specifically his interest in applications of how heavy ion radiation interacts with soft and condensed matter for ground-based analogs, manned spaceflight vehicle structure, shielding, and clinical health care. And we had a lot of questions about this whole area that we know is also rife with confusion, so we thought this would make a pretty interesting um, discussion for this evening. So welcome, Jeff. Good evening. How are you? Very good. We're also joined by my co-host, Tom Hill, who will be also offering some questions this evening. So maybe we can go ahead and kick things off. Um, you know, I just mentioned very top line what your academic credentials are and um, some of your research interests, but maybe you could tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you specifically became interested in radiation research. Um, we're also interested in the fact that uh, you, it looks like you spent some time as a NASA contractor and then also advising NASA on various uh, space radiation issues. So with that, I'm going to turn things over to you. Sure. Well, my background is in, in nuclear physics. Um, most of my research is in computational nuclear physics, where we use like uh, supercomputers and higher performance computers to try to simulate some of these dynamics and um, show um, possibly how the interactions with, like you talked about, either soft or condensed matters are going to evolve over time. 
Um, I've been working with or for NASA for close to 25 years now, so a really long time. And I, I honestly just kind of accidentally stumbled into this um, when I was in graduate school. My uh, PhD advisor um, was um, heavily involved with NASA and research. As a matter of fact, during his PhD, I think his PhD project, if I remember correctly, was he did all the dosimetry for the Apollo 11, um, I think through 16 missions. So he's been involved with them even longer, much longer, obviously, than I have. Um, wow. And as part of the part of the research, he facilitated an internship where I worked with the group at NASA that does all the operational um, space radiation research and support. Um, and I guess my passion for it just kind of evolved from it. Wow, that's that's really interesting. And also, just as a side note, I believe it was, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't it Apollo 16 or between Apollo 16 and 17 where there was a huge solar flare that could have really wreaked havoc on the uh, on the astronauts if they had actually been on the lunar surface during that time? Correct. That was August 1972. Ah, it's still, okay. That is still used as a worst-case scenario to evaluate shielding and human health effects from like an acute radiation exposure in space. Wow. I don't know if you um, happen to watch For All Mankind, which is on Apple TV. I do. And I saw it. I know what episode you're talking about, too. That was really <laughs> cool. Yeah. So I want to ask you about that. Um, and, and, and actually, truth be told, that sort of is what got us, you know, thinking about, yeah, it might be kind of cool to do an episode on space radiation because the, uh, the imagery of that, um, you know, and, and also just to our audience, if you haven't seen or are not a, a fan of For All Mankind, this will be a bit of a spoiler, but um, in the season two opener, there was a massive, basically, what was it, a coronal mass ejection, or basically a big, huge solar flare. Particle event. And there was no way to, basically, anyone on the surface of the moon had to take shelter as soon as possible. And we won't tell you all the details of what happened, but they show this really wild scene with this particle event encountering the lunar surface in a very visually dramatic way. And I don't know if you wanted to comment on that at all. Do you think that's realistic or was that you know, just taking artistic license with what actually occurs at the subatomic level or. No, no, that was actually a, a pretty good, uh, I guess, reenaction of a solar particle event. Um, it, it's it, they they it was actually I thought it was very cool because for the longest time, you know, being in space radiation, I'm and my colleagues are the people you never want to talk to. So you kind of hide us in the back room until the worst case scenario happens. So now. It was really cool. As a and then you called them us. out and we want answers now. <laughs> right. No, exactly. It's exactly what happens. And I can tell you stories about that in Mission Control, just where all mayhem breaks loose. Um, but they did a really good job um, describing the, uh, the inability to predict them. Um, the fact that in some instances, I don't think the 72 um, event was moving that fast. And it was either October of 2003 or 2000 where there was a vent large enough where the the most of the protons in the ejection were moving at near relativistic speed. So it reached low Earth orbit in like 16 minutes. Yikes. So, you know, just smoking fast. And they were probably 
um, leveraging that. I would assume they had someone from either the group I worked with or at NASA as a reference or an advisor on it because they did a really good job on it. It was kind of fun to watch, you know, and I guess a sick kind of way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I also, And I love the foreboding, you know, at the end of the episode where they had their like smartwatch dosimeters and it's like one's green and one's red. Ah! <laughs> right. And I believe they used those in the early Apollo missions. And if in, in the, the scenarios they enacted, like when I was working on Constellation, we were looking at various instances like, OK, if it took them an hour to get back to shelter, 30 minutes to shelter, two hours to shelter, how, you know, all these different scenarios that we would try to plan for and have a mitigation strategy. So they did a really good job of thinking about those occurrences where the one astronaut was stranded, you know, in the middle of that crater and being exposed to the um, full exposure. Yeah, yeah, it uh, it was definitely cringeworthy, but uh, yeah, I enjoyed enjoyed that episode very much. So very cool. Okay, well, um, and I'm glad to know that you're watching it as well. So yeah, of course, I'm a space nerd, so I have to watch it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Has anybody been keeping count of how many space shuttles they have? They just keep throwing out names. It's uh, it's been pretty entertaining. Oh, uh, that's a good point. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't even pay attention to that, to be honest with you. Yeah, I was like, well, you know, they were saying, well, we've got, you know, that, 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 that parked at Vandenberg and I need more parking space. Oh, wow. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was cool, though, that they, they talked about Pathfinder, which is that mock-up that's at Huntsville. You know, they're referring to that. Yeah. And they also snuck in Sea Dragon again in this last episode, which was kind of fun, too. Yeah, they, they had a, a couple of nice references to historic or, or presumed missions. So it's, they're doing a pretty good job, I would say. Yeah. I'm yeah. Sure. Yeah. I love how they throw in the little Easter eggs. So it's always fun. Right. To prove they know what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so have another uh, sort of a, a side related question. When I was looking at your, uh, your CV and it looks like you were also involved in the Red Bull Stratus mission, which I thought was interesting. And would love to get a little bit of background about what your role was with that and, um, you know, interacting with the crew. And did you meet Joe Kittinger? Uh, just, you know, just wonder about that. No. So actually, um, at the time I was at, I was a program manager at the, it's now defunct, but the National Space Biomedical Research Institute and John Clark, who was the chief medical officer for the Red Bull Stratus mission, asked me to come in mostly towards the end to help tease out any risks from space weather related anomalies. Because um, honestly, at that at that altitude and that location, um, which was closer to the, the equator versus the poles, um, it wasn't much of a risk for, I guess, a health concern for radiation. But they did have some problems in the final, I'm trying to remember, it's been a long time, couple test jumps leading up to the um, the final jump where they lost signal um, in communication with the um, vehicle or with EPIRB that, uh, um, I guess, indicated where he would be during his drop. And so, and they attributed that to, and it was likely so because of just changes in the geomagnetic field and electron precipitation in the upper atmosphere that that attenuated the radio signal and um, they were having a problem with uh, just communication there. That's right. Signals that work fine here at sea level, once you get into the ionosphere, they start acting differently and it depends on a lot of different factors. Right, mm. right. 
Yeah, that's, that was a lot of fun because, I mean, it was I never got to meet any of them because I was at a conference the week before, um, and then they pushed it forward. And so I did all of my last-minute um, analysis and submission of the go or no-go at, you know, on my home in Houston um, right up until the, you know, an hour before the mission. And I have to think, uh, and there was the, the no, Space Weather Prediction Center at NOAA who NASA worked with very closely, and, and they were good enough to take my calls directly throughout the night because there were some unforeseen anomalies that could have been concerning, and they were helping me plan and make recommendations. So it was, I was listed as the space weather advisor, but it was more of a team effort because they had a lot of the technologies I didn't have at my fingertips, and they were great about assisting. Wow, very interesting. Um, and actually, just out of curiosity, so. Did they plan on the location for that jump closer to the equator? Because isn't the atmosphere somewhat thicker towards the equator? Am I remembering that correctly? I don't know that for certain. Um, it could have been a combination of that and the fact that they would they were in a very isolated area that was mostly flat, so easier to stay in contact and locate them after the jump. Because if you remember during the jump, there was some trouble where he started spinning yeah. uncontrollably and almost lost consciousness. And they, they cut the public feed, but I was I remember being on the internal feed and there was there was a couple of minutes where they were very concerned that he was going to lose consciousness and they were hoping that the automatic mechanisms they had instigated that would deploy the parachutes and he would at least parachute down even if he was unconscious, but I, I would assume that's why they did it in that area. I don't know those details to be honest with you. Well, also they had the, it was near the range. They had, there was a lot of open space. I know that was amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they had lots of, because they had one, at least one, maybe two helicopters in the air and deployed with medical crew and recovery crew to be able to, when they, once they located them after he hit the ground to, to get there as quick as possible and provide assistance as they needed. Right. Also notice that you have a number of patents to your name as well, quite a few actually. And I don't know if you wanted to comment on any of those. Um, yeah, so I've been working in this field for a while, and, and it's inevitable if you're looking. I, I, either I do nuclear and computational physics, I do lean towards applied physics. So we we try to find real world solutions to problems. And in, in in my case, it's looking at you know, further in the, the progress of, of the human space program and putting humans out in space safely. Um, so I've been working um, for the first part of my career, I mostly did hardware development, like detectors, um, radiation detectors, and then shielding analysis. And so I was part of a team that developed a, a ability to put a radiation detector on a solid state um, silicon device and, and substantially shrink it to a much, much smaller size, which is always advantageous in space where volume and mass and cargo size is, is a precious commodity. Um, so I was very lucky to be part of that team and we got two patents out of it. And then I also have a patent and then I think three more being submitted right now by LSU where we've developed methods to simulate the space radiation environment at a ground-based uh, heavy ion accelerator. How much, how large an area can you cover? Um, as big as the beam is, um, it, it's literally just using very old physics concepts to break apart a single ion energy beam into smaller progeny fragments um, at select energies and um, species. 
So it just depends on it. It's like, it's a, it's a, so in this case, I call it a moderator block in, and you, you'll see this sometimes in like clinical radiotherapy where they use a piece of plastic or some other mass to attenuate certain parts of the proton or carbon beam so that it focuses the energy on a certain part of the, the tumor location. In this case, I'm looking just to break it apart in select amounts or to attenuate the energy in select amounts. So the block itself can be built as big or as small as is possible with a really high resolution 3D printer or a really good machine shop, which is pretty standard in any physics department. Um, the only limitation would be just the size, the spot size of the beam that could be provided at a heavy ion accelerator. I think NSRL, which is the NASA Space Radiation Laboratory right now, they're limited to uh, 60 by 60 centimeter square beam. Any of these devices, have they actually flown? Um, so I, as part of my master's work, I did the initial characterization and some of the very fundamental work, I guess I would say, for what they call the Metapix detector. That eventually evolved to what is called the TimePix. And actually, it was a good friend of mine's PhD project. And as that is now the hardware that has flown on the space station and is being utilized as the next generation of dosimeter for um, NASA spaceflight efforts. Very cool. So yeah, yeah, it is actually pretty cool. When my wife flew, she actually she made sure to take videos and pictures of it so she could I could see it, even though I'd seen it before. But it was it was kind of a, a nice tie-in for seeing something that I did a little bit of the development on. But one of our good friends did a lot of the development on flying up there. It's a wow. it's a cool feeling. Yeah. Well, actually, um, that's a great segue because I did want to ask you a question about um, at when your wife was preparing for her flight to the station. Did you have any conversations with her about, okay, so when you're up there and there's this problem, here's what I want you to do. <laughs> um, I'm just curious if you gave her any sort of words of wisdom um, before flight about radiation. Honestly, no. It was so hectic leading up to that moment that it didn't even cross my head. And I, in, in honestly, in low Earth orbit, at their orbit inclination and altitude in the, the shielding mass of the space station, it's not that big of a deal for an off nominal event like a solar particle event. Unless it's a huge event, doesn't really affect them as much as it would like in a space shuttle or through on the EVA or at a much higher altitude or inclination. Plus um, for each mission, you know, there's a whole team of support engineers and controllers working with it. And it just so happened that one of my closest friends who still works at NASA in the space radiation analysis group was assigned her mission. So I had no worries in the world because I knew she was going to be well taken care of. There's was, there was many other things to worry about other than that. Um, yeah, but many other things that could kill you um, right. when you're up there. So here, here's another question. Again, this is more of just asking for to make sure that we have the terminology correct. You know, I hear two terms that are kind of thrown out all the time, space radiation and then space weather. And I'm wondering if they are terms that can be used interchangeably or if there, if there is a distinction and if one is preferred over the other. So it's just, you know, curious if you could elaborate on that a bit. That's actually a tough question. Um, yes, they're interchangeable because I use them back and forth all the time, pretty flippantly. Space weather just describes all of the, the phenomena in space related to the radiation environment. And so it, in, in, 
my experience, it includes the plasma being emitted from the sun at a continuous rate, changes in coronal hole, high-speed streams, solar particle events, the galactic cosmic ray spectrum that is um, pretty isotropic in space, you know, the trap radiation um, in the Van Allen belts that are found in low Earth orbit. So I would, I would, that's a good question. I would guess if I was forced to say space weather just kind of characterizes all those phenomena in one big package. But when I do talk about space radiation, because a lot of my work is now looking at human health effects. And as a physicist, I only know so much about the biology. I always call myself a recreational radiobiologist. So I know enough about it to get myself in trouble. But I work with a lot of really smart radiobiologists and physicians. And so and I end up giving a lot of the lectures to like the medical students or people interested in that area, like the medical aspects of space radiation. And I always try to be um, very specific to talk about how you characterize the operational space radiation environment, which would be space weather, um, because there's three main aspects that when, from our perspective or from NASA's perspective, you, you look at different aspects of it and how it affects a, spe- a specific component of a spaceflight mission. We hope you enjoyed part one of our interview with physicist and space radiation expert, Dr. Jeff Chancellor. Join us for the continuation of our discussion in our next podcast. For co-hosts Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.